All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This episode is brought to you by Nexo, the only lender offering instant crypto credit lines, which let you use digital assets as collateral to get cash in 45 different fiat currencies and stable coins. You can also park idle assets with Nexo and earn up to 8% annually. It's a company that's a strategic partner of exchanges, OTC desks, and crypto funds, all of which borrow, lend, and grow their assets using Nexo. Explore Nexo.io or reach them at institutions at Nexo.io to learn more. Save money this tax season with LucaTax, the only tested crypto tax software. Luca's listened to your feedback. Now you can calculate capital gains and see the results using three different accounting methods side by side, all for free. You only pay if you want to access their detailed tax reports. Luca supports unlimited transaction uploads from all major exchanges and wallets and helps optimize your tax reporting so you can max out this year's refund. LucaTax wants to help Masari's Unqualified Opinions listeners save even more this year. So use promo code MasariTax and you'll get $5 off the normal price at $39.95 when downloading today. Go to L-U-K-K-A-T-A-X.com and save money this tax season. Have you seen what the Crypto.com team's been up to lately? Talking about the MCO Visa card. It's a beautiful metal card you can top up with crypto and spend anywhere Visa's accepted. You get up to 5% back on all your spending, plus 100% rebates on Spotify, Netflix, and now Amazon Prime Travel. How about unlimited airport lounge access and interbank exchange rates? So many perks in just one card. You can download the Crypto.com app and reserve yours today. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with for exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space. Check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. What's up, everyone? Welcome back. It's another episode of Masari's Qualified Opinions. I'm Ryan Selkis at 2BitIdiots. Have another Awesome episode today for you with Alex Gladstein, who's the Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation. We're going to talk about Bitcoin, uh, which is what we were always planning to talk about, but we're also going to talk about global public health and the role that authoritarian regimes have in constraining data and the impact that could have on public health. It's particularly timely given the coronavirus. I think people might get sick of talking about this, but unfortunately for uh, for better or for worse, mostly for worse, uh, I think Alex and I think uh, this this is not necessarily going away. So important to discuss not just um, what's likely to happen uh, going forward, but uh, some of the human rights implications. And so timely conversation. Uh, I had the, the pleasure of, of meeting Alex, who's very flexible in, in chasing me down during the 15 minute <laughs> window I had. Uh, before I headed out from, yeah. from my most recent trip to SF. And I'm glad we made it happen because I found him to be one of the most uh, thoughtful and, uh, and, and eager uh, proponents of, of crypto and, and in, the, in the broader context of what it could mean for a freer world. Uh, a lot of people talk about that, but uh, Alex and his team at the Human Rights Foundation are actually doing that. So, so Alex, um, with that as the lead, why don't we just dive into your personal origin story and, and how you ultimately uh, came down the crypto rabbit hole. Sure. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I've been working at the Human Rights Foundation, uh, which is a nonprofit in New York City uh, that focuses on helping people who live under authoritarian regimes since 2007. 
and technology and human rights has always been something I focused very closely at the beginning. Um, my first uh, job as a summer intern in 2007 was to help put backpacks of information that my colleagues would take into Cuba and give to the underground library movement where information is power and where books are banned by the Communist Party. And we were bringing in different kinds of dubbed films and texts and things like that. And people would kind of have discussion groups in their homes. Uh, this later turned into what was called the, what, the Paquete movement, where people would actually smuggle uh, receivers, satellite receivers, and then like people in the neighborhoods would download a huge amount of content and then share it. Um, so that's kind of what's happened since. Uh, but that was my first exposure to how important technology and information could be in aiding people who live under dictatorships. Later on, I spent a lot of time working with North Korean refugees and defectors through our Flash Drives for Freedom program. Uh, I visited South Korea many, many times to, to meet these people who'd escaped um, and work with them and figure out what they needed. And really what they needed was just solidarity, attention, interaction. They're very ignored by the government in South Korea. Um, they are very ignored by South Korean society, um, but they're doing noble work. You know, they're, they're sending information to the people they left behind, right? So we want to help them with that. So we've been able to send in tens of thousands of flash drives and USB sticks uh, with outside information, movies, books, films, again, demonstrating the power of information. Um, I've also worked at HRF to help coordinate uh, trainings uh, for activists and journalists with regard to digital security, uh, how to browse the internet privately, how to communicate privately, etc. So that's been a big part of um, our agenda uh, since 2013. Um, we've been we've been very very active in that area of digital security. Um, and you know, before then, it was like kind of <clears throat> I don't know the narrative sort of shifted, right? Because Arab Spring happened, and everybody was like, "Oh, technology is going to be great," and then. And then people realized, oh, wait, it's, it's maybe not going to be so great. Um, this uh, long arc of history, which looked like it was Steven Pinkerish getting very better for everybody on average up to the year 2000-ish, starts to bend in a different direction if we don't take certain steps now with regard to privacy and freedom is kind of what I realized. And that was right about the time when um, a friend of mine named Bill Tai, uh, who's on the board of Bitfury, mm -hmm. he started talking to me in... in 2016 about um, maybe putting together a human rights activist with um, with the Bitcoin community. So a few months later, we did our first little very basic informational workshop at one of our events, and then ever since I've I've yeah been down been down the rabbit hole with with a you know with a focus on how can this stuff help people in authoritarian regimes. So my focus is very very different from someone who's just trying to make a quick buck or mm -hmm. who's trying to innovate on something or create the new next thing or whatever. I'm just trying to see hey could this stuff actually um resist like attacks uh, from sovereign nations? Could this thing actually hold up? Um could it provide value? And that's what drew me in, in particular to, to working so closely with Bitcoin. And, and uh there's normally a discovery phase and then an action phase. Uh, some people that's very compressed, uh, some people that is drawn out of the multiple market cycles. So you first heard about Bitcoin and it, w it, was, it was when? I mean, uh, <laughs> I had a pretty interesting introduction to it. Um, I used to go to this thing called Ephemeral, which is a party in the Sacramento River Delta with a bunch of like, engineers and Burning Man people and whatever. Mm -hmm. It was really fun. And I went in, if I'm 
correct, 2013, 14, 15. And um, I think if it was maybe the first or second time I went, I shared a boat with Brock Pierce and he was like really gung-ho at the time about about Bitcoin. And uh, he had brought out like a, like a, like a cash, like a fake ATM to like use as a prop during his little talks out on the, on the boats that we would tie together. And um, I just remember that. And unfortunately, I mean, I even have this email from, uh, I think even earlier than 2013 of a guy named Idan Yago, who I'd met at Ephemera. Yep. And he's trying mm-hmm. to pitch me on the human rights side of Bitcoin. And I was kind of like, eh, you know, whatever, man. And, and <clears throat> it really wasn't until um, I even tweeted. I mean, I, I remember reading Mark Anderson's piece in the New York times in 2014 and sharing that and being like, that's really cool um, about Bitcoin. But it didn't really fall into place for me until Bill Tai was like, Hey, no, we should actually do this. And then I was forced with like actually being like, Hey, I should actually learn about this in a serious way if I'm going to continue. So it's really been, uh, I'm kind of in my, you know, let's say, uh, working on my fourth year of being serious about this. Um, and it's been, yeah, an incredible journey. I mean, every day, just learning, 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 you know? And, and the reason I ask, uh, especially for what you're talking about, the market gyrations have been extreme, but most people I'd say that have been around recognize the value of these manic cycles in building the long-term capital base and infrastructure base for the rest of the industry. So essentially the tools that you need to power any type of actual at scale commerce or payments applications or security uh, infrastructure so, so that you could actually use Bitcoin as a bona fide currency. The, the proverbial Swiss bank account in your pocket, which has a negative connotation, but not if you're dissident. Right, not if you're someone that's um, either being exploited. Yeah, man, it's or, all about or, your perspective. At risk, right? And I know my perspective was very unique because I, you know, my non my nonprofit is arguably the only one that focuses explicitly on authoritarianism, mm-hmm. which is to me, I wish we had more copycats because the problem is so massive. There's 4.8, 4.18 billion people who live under some kind of authoritarian regime today um, across 95 countries. But you know, I'm just thinking about them, and I'm hearing their stories. And they talk about money a lot. They just never think about including it in their presentations on stage. I'll explain. So in Eritrea, um, I was sitting down with someone who'd escaped from Eritrea, which is known as like the North Korea of Africa. It's a country on the, in, in Eastern Africa, on the Horn of Africa. And it's been ruled by a very brutal dictator uh, who really turned into his country into a police state after 9-11. And a lot of these uh, Western democracies and other states um, after 9-11 became much more friendly with a lot more dictators in this region because, of course, terrorism, right? Um, so, you know, she was telling me that, like, about 10 years ago, the country just demonetized uh, the currency completely. It wasn't like India where they had, like, one note and then they replaced it. The entire currency. Same thing happened in North Korea around the same time. So people in, like, the most repressive areas have the most financial repression. And it, it was something that I had to kind of dig out because they don't talk about it as a matter of, like, I'm going to put this in my presentation before I go speak at the Oslo Freedom Forum. No, I had to kind of dig, dig, dig. And you talk to the Zimbabweans, same thing. I invited one of them to speak about hyperinflation at an event I did a few years ago in San Francisco. And the guy's like, really? I've never talked about economics. I'm like, no, we just want to hear your story about what it was like to live under that, right? And he comes and he gets on stage and he takes out his necklace and he's like, actually, we all wear this... Um, 
uh, necklace. It's, it's the Zimbabwean dollar from 1980 and it's on his neck. And he's like, we all, all of us in the opposition movement, a lot of us wear this thing as a, as a symbol and memory of what our economy used to be. So if you actually like ask them and push a little bit in this direction, you get some amazing content, amazing content. Um, I was with the guy who's the top diplomat to ever escape from North Korea, Mr. Young Ho. And I started chatting with him about this. He speaks perfect English. And uh, he was telling me, he, he went into the gruesome details of how the guy who presided over the demonetization, demonetization scheme in North Korea in 2009 or whatever, um, which didn't work at all. Like people ended up protesting by, by not going to these like black markets, basically that the government requires to, for the economy to work. Um, it was a disaster. And he, he told me about how that person was executed and with like, with which gun and stuff. So it was, it was really interesting. So, and then, you, you know, then you start looking more closely at the human rights community globally and you realize they all have problems with their bank accounts. Their bank accounts get frozen frequently. I was talking to a Nicaraguan. She hasn't been able to have a bank account in her name for two years. There's a guy in Russia um, that, I, that we were supporting. You know, I basically, we had to pay him in cash. We, we had to fly him to America and pay him in cash to reimburse him because it, he would get arrested if we wired him money. So, and look at Hong Kong, man. The second biggest organization that's supporting uh, the, you know, with legal and medical help, the protesters had his bank account frozen by HSBC. So this is like a global issue. And it is something that I feel, um, you know, Bitcoin can play uh, a, a role in. So what, what I'm trying to do when you talk about going from learning to action, what I'm trying to do is set up workshops. And we started doing this already. <clears throat> so we've done this, but we want to do more of these. We bring in some like civil society groups or journalism outfits or groups operating in tough environments who like, you know, have already had issues with bank account, uh, freezing delays, et cetera. Um, and we basically, what we want to do is like, um, have them bring their computer and phone in and, and we'll, we'll set up BTC pay server on their website so they can like relatively privately collect uh, Bitcoin donations from people from around the world <clears throat> and then have that dump into a phone that they control. That's non KYC. Um, and then teach them about when they need to spend it, um, how to do so like in whatever city they're in. So in some cities, it's Bitcoin ATMs. Like in Hong Kong, the Bitcoin ATMs don't require KYC. <clears throat> so you can just go and withdraw and like no one's the wiser. In other cities, you're going to have to use, um, like in the Philippines, there are stores you can go into, brick and mortar stores. In other countries, it's, it's going to be done over WhatsApp. Um, you know, we want to encourage people to not use KYC exchanges uh, in this environment. Um, so there's a lot of learning and a lot of discussions but ultimately, we believe this can be a really valuable lifeline for activists and journalists under threat. That, so that's kind of what I'm focusing on uh, right now as far as like action, taking what I've learned and putting it into action. If you basically said exactly what you said, but in the 90s, pre 9-11, I don't feel like it would sound very radical. Um, but now we've just gotten so conditioned that KYC AML, oh, of course, you know, we want to make sure that, that you know, Money launderers aren't able to take yeah. advantage of the banking system, even I, though they do at scale, right? We, um, but just on that note, we had a presentation from uh, 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 someone who works in banking, uh, who does a lot of work in crypto, and she is on their compliance side, basically. And it was great. I had her come in, and she gave a presentation of uh, financial surveillance in the United States, the history of it, um, to the, these activists from around the world. And, you know, she talked about, you know, wh why the Bank Secrecy Act, like, and, you know, the fact that it didn't really have a lot of teeth for decades, um, not until 9-11, right? And then after 9-11, everything's changed. You know, whole Patriot Act thing, let's take your civil liberties away for security. 
what a lot of people didn't realize is this, it was, it was not just being done with your communications and your telecommunications, but also your money and, and your banking, right? So there's this whole thing now where, I don't know if you saw this New York Times piece the other day, but showed that our government spent like $100 million over four years <clears throat> to spy on people's telecommunications uh, in a warrantless way that was probably illegal. And they got like one, one case out of it, like one meaningful piece of information. Yeah, so this is gonna, this is happening with your transactions too. So like, you know, when you buy something from Coinbase, let's say, uh, an asset and you move it into your own, your own wallet. Um, I mean, hey, I'd like uh, the, like, uh, I'd like a third party to have to get a warrant to get that data from Coinbase. Like that would make sense. But unfortunately, that's not what's happening right now, right? So we need to be as aggressive uh, with regard to our financial privacy as we are with our communications privacy. I agree with you. I think many people that are in crypto agree with you, which is why you've probably found a number of kindred spirits and, and supporters. At the same time, you have to do some de facto KYC of your, your yourselves because as a brand, as a, a, a human rights group, mm -hmm. you can't afford to make a bad calculation on who is an activist versus who ultimately blows himself up. And not to say that that, that situation has ne necessarily arisen, but it, it would only have to happen once out of the many hundreds or thousands of people yeah. that you support. So, so how do you toe this line, right? Yes, yeah. I think we agree that, that default privacy and um, default uh, non-surveillance or, or non-authoritarianism is, is a better society to live in. But if you're going to promote that and then you're wrong just once, it can be used against you mm -hmm. and, and it could potentially blow up the entire movement. It's a great moral dilemma to discuss. Um, but you know what? We've been through it before many times with encryption. So we, we had the same exact conversation with regard to, well, should you be giving activists, should you be telling activists about PGP and Signal? Um, to me, this is the same exact conversations. Should you be telling them about Bitcoin? Um, I would much rather them live in a world where they are, uh, they have more tools in their toolbox and they know how to use PGP and signal and a proper VPN and they understand the risks and they know what Bitcoin is and they understand how to use it if they can. And they understand what the risks are far rather that they be in that position than be ignorant. Um, so to me, it's not, it's, it, 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 you can frame it as a dilemma, but it's not a dilemma to me. I'm like a hundred percent on the side of let's educate them, get them the information, let them make the decisions about whether or not to use it. Um, I think that, I think that makes sense, but you still have some discretion over which activists are. Yeah. Yeah. These with. workshops I'm talking about are right. completely private off the record. Mm -hmm. We're going to pre-select um, groups that uh, a are already semi robust are already receiving in the position to receive donations and are having trouble with it. Right. So Hong Kong free press is a great example. It's not a group we've worked with, but I'm going to use it as an example where, you know, they've been accepting Bitcoin donations for a while and, and a significant amount of them has been really helpful for them because a lot of people who want to donate to them don't want to reveal their privacy. And for a long time they were using BitPay, which was like a disaster because then BitPay froze their account. I, arguably, I guess, because of pressure from the Chinese government, um, which is why my friend Leo Weiss came to the rescue and got them set up with BTC pay. That's why BTC pay server is such an important project. So now you can donate to them. And I'm proud to say you can donate to HRF too with BTC pay today. And you can do it in a way that preserves your privacy. Um, and I think that's really important. So um, that aspect is not discussed enough. How much of your funding currently comes from Bitcoin? 
It sounds very theory, but in, in general. So, so, um, uh, so the first time we accepted Bitcoin as a donation was in 2014. Um, so one of our supporters wanted to pay for his um, Oslo Freedom Forum tickets in, in Bitcoin. And we were like, at the time, like, what, really? Like, this is weird. Should we do this? So we discussed and we were like, okay, let's do it. So we, we actually started accepting some Bitcoin donations. It wasn't like something we were advertising. Like people were coming to us and saying, hey, I've got some Bitcoin. Can I, um, can I use it to, to pay for tickets to go to your events? So um, that ended up being, you know, pretty favorable for us over the years. Um, I would say it's certainly not been a large percentage, uh, a very, you know, small overall percentage, very small overall percentage of our, of our income. I mean, minuscule, but um, it, it is starting to become a thing now um, that I think, uh, will be more favorable in the future. Um, I, you know, my personal goal of course is to get people to think about planting a seed today that could grow into a tree tomorrow from a charitable point of view. So especially as we potentially enter another bull market in the next year or two, I think there'll be people who are more interested in, in giving back in a certain way. And I hope initiatives like this can, can, can be something they, they consider. Outside of payments to certain people that work yeah. with, are there specific programs that you want to get off the ground or, or specific partnerships mm-hmm. like BTC pay that are in the works for this year or, or that are mm-hmm. um, yeah, the, the, there's tar- very, targeted, targeted on, on a specific jurisdiction or, or, or geography? The, there's three, where, three areas that I think HRF can be helpful. Uh, mm-hmm. Education. So just getting out in front of people, talking about this issue, dialoguing with them, introducing them to these concepts. Um, and even personally, that's why I wrote the little Bitcoin book with a bunch of people because we wanted to, in a hundred pages, get the main ideas across in a way that was digestible. And now it's like in five or six different languages. And for, um, and for those that don't know, the, the, the story here is fascinating. So the little Bitcoin book was a book that was written by what, around a dozen, eight people, uh, eight people, eight, eight, eight people yeah. in, in less than a week. It was like Jimmy mm-hmm. song, um, uh, uh you, uh, Lily, few, Lou. Lily uh, from, yeah. uh, formerly from Earn, uh, and, uh, and a few others just uh-huh. got together and just pounded out this 100 page, uh, Bible that is open source <laughs> and is, is now available in, in all these languages. What, yeah. what was that process like? Um, yeah, I mean the, again, like when it comes to like how I can hopefully play a role, um, let's, let's dive into that, but just, just to finish the previous thought. So mm-hmm. education, uh, Security training, as I described, something I want to do a lot more of. And then general research, like I want to do a lot more research on in the field about how are people using money in diff- difficult places. But on the education piece, when we decided that let's write a book, I think the, incent- the incentive and the interest in doing so came from a realization that a lot of the Bitcoin books out there um, were uh, technical or ideological in some way and weren't like for the average person. And, and each eight of the eight of us had a different person in mind when we wrote the, when we were writing the book. Right. So we actually sat down, Jimmy had us uh, do this really fun exercise where we wrote the book review from the point of view of the person we wanted to read the book before we started. Um, and you know, some people were like writing for their mother. Some people were writing for like, a, a, you know, the average young smart student in a particular country, etc., etc. And, and Luis, I remember from the Philippines, was writing for a, an older businessman, you know? So we each had our own audience and that really helped us identify what were the common themes that 
uh, we needed to hit no matter what. Okay. So the first day was like a design sprint where we went through all these different ideas and used post-its and figured out what the table of contents would be. And then the second day was just drafts. So we all, we each grabbed a chapter basically, and we each like wrote three to 4,000 words as a draft for that chapter. Um, and then the, the remaining two days were, you know, the seven of us who didn't write the chapter were just going through those edits. So we each went, each of us went through each chapter. So each chapter got massive numbers of edits. All the while, uh, Luis was doing the graphic design and layout for the book. So that by the time we left uh, the house that we were all staying at, um, it was almost there. You know, it, we did get some professional editors and some other things. And it took a few weeks to get to, uh, you know, for us to put it up on Amazon. But the point is, uh, it, it happened quite quickly. And it was a really fun ex experience, I think. We had some but, big but, debates. But anyone that's ever written before realizes that's insane. That, that, that publication speed, right? So to, yeah. to, to get something out the door that Yeah, quickly. no, it was, it was um, really something we prided ourselves on, but it was... It, it, it forces you to just make, uh, look, it forces you to make concessions because you're going mm -hmm. so fast. So yep. we had some non-serious arguments like Oxford comma was like a big one. Um, and, and you know, which, people, so which, which I did you fall on? I, I like the Oxford comma, but a lot of people who are more, programmer, hey, we, can, we can, we can continue this conversation, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but a lot of people are like very against it. No, but there were other big ones. Like, look, I have a particular, um, I share with some of the other co-authors that, um, look, I'm a little, skeptical let's say that like it's been a hundred percent positive that we've lived under the dollar standard for the last 50 years uh, i'll admit and acknowledge of course there's been a big big um positive things about the growth of the world but like for a lot of people in a lot of countries it hasn't been so great so i think there was a big debate about how we present you know the dollar standard how neutral we should be um and then in addition i think there was thoughts about how money printing and basically uh, control over money has had a relationship with war in history. And this was like mm -hmm. controversial. We argued about this a lot. We ended up including some of it. Um, but just, just to give you an example, uh, obviously in World War I, um, the Deutsche Mark before the war was uh, worth a certain amount. And then after the war was worth one trillionth of that amount because the German government decided to go off the gold standard and just print endless amounts of it to pay for soldiers. And had they not made that decision, they wouldn't have been able to fight as long. And obviously many less people would have died. And arguably you can say this whole thing led to the hyperinflation that allowed Hitler to, to go into power. So there's actually like a really important lesson there. But um, we were arguing about that a lot. Like, is it even, you know, is it, is this, is this scientific historically uh, legit thing to say that, abuse of money by governments has led to war, right? So there were some really deep philosophical conversations and arguments we had that were very enriching that I'm very grateful for. But we ended did up having they, those did arguments. Those make yeah. the, did those make the book or were those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like a little bit. Like if you read the first chapter is like about what's wrong with money today. It doesn't even mention Bitcoin mm -hmm. or cryptocurrency. And um, yeah, we do talk about the fact that like a lot of decisions about money are, are not made with the people. Like people have no uh, say in those decisions. So it's not like, uh, in 2001, the government came to you and said, hey, we're going to fight a forever war for the next 20 years and each household's going to pay, um, you know, this many million dollars. Like, how, how do you want to pay? By check or by, you know, PayPal or whatever? Uh, no, they did it without asking, right? So um, it even persists today in democratic societies.
So I, I think this, this was this was the rise of of libertarianism and and you know Ron Paul uh, in the country for so long. And you could argue yeah. that there was a sizable uh, element of Trump supporters that that fell into this camp because you know yeah. he, he, I mean um, say what you will uh, about. Trump, I think Peter Thiel uh, had, had an excellent interview where he makes the point that he was the most non-interventionist, non-violent candidate, which is why Thiel supported him. Um, and and you could argue that this, you know, 20-year history with Afghanistan and Iraq uh, played, you know, a meaningful part in, in you know, the support for what is now a much bigger sea change in, in American politics. Um, and, and many would argue for the worst. I want to try to stay away uh, from yeah, no, no, no. Just, of it, just, just to put a cap on that. Up. Obviously, yes. I, th- there's this interesting area of Bitcoin that brings together both, mm-hmm. I would say, um, left and right wing iso- isolationist types. Um, yep. Which I don't really. I'm not really on that wavelength. I, I think America mm-hmm. needs to uh, needs to be a little more active in the world than I think they would they would like to see. Um, but it's, it's fascinating. Anyway, these, these arguments and conversations you get into, but we finished the book, we got it out there. It's now in a bunch of different languages. I think it's serving as a very useful educational tool. And I'd like to do a lot more of the educational piece, the training piece, and then the research piece over the coming years. So that's kind of where, where I'd like to focus my. Yeah. So, so we only, you know, we spent the lion's share of the time on the, on the, that as like an education piece or at least an mm-hmm. example. So do you yeah. talk, talk, elaborate on the other two pillars? Well, I, you know, over the years I've been fortunate enough at HRF to be able to cultivate relationships with some of the best journalists in the world and, and work with them in different ways. And, and they often come to the Oslo freedom forum. So um, I've been able to, um, again, be fortunate enough to, to allow for them to allow me to publish some thoughts about Bitcoin in mainstream media. So I've been able to write about Bitcoin for CNN, for time magazine, uh, you know, get, getting content up at Bloomberg, Forbes, et cetera. So that's, that's my goal. I mean, I really want to speak to the people who are not already in Bitcoin. That's like really my goal. I would like to uh, show them a little bit of this. And this is what I do through Singularity University as well. I teach uh, the executive program there and I do a course on the future of money where I talk about uh, CBDCs and the DCEP project in China and what's happening there. I talk about what could happen with things like Libra and then I talk about Bitcoin and I, I kind of like show them the pros and cons of each. And they're like 70 CEOs of big companies from around the world. And we have a big argument. It's great. A lot of them are bankers. Um, and you know, it's like pretty robust, but I I really like doing this educational piece where I talk to people who, who don't know anything about it. Like yesterday, I just spoke to a university in San Francisco, a bunch of students, super fun. So, so that's what I like doing as opposed to kind of speaking to the already, you know, interested. So that's, that's, I guess what I mean by the education piece. And especially in HRF's context, obviously I would love to teach as many human rights activists as possible about this idea. And unlike people who are like, on wall street or whatever, who are like skeptical. When you tell these people there's, there's a money that's not controlled by governments or corporations. They're like, I'm listening, tell me more as opposed to like, you know, shut up or whatever. So it's, it's a very receptive audience. Well, I think, uh, unfortunately the role of, of HRF is only going to become more pronounced than its importance and organizations like HRF, given what's happening, right now with the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing is this is probably going to drop in two weeks. So, so people are going to get a glimpse of whether 
we're insane uh, and mm-hmm. we're totally overblown in terms of the potential okay. impact or whether this is prophetic um, because uh, we'll, we'll have the benefit of hindsight when it goes live. But my uh, fear is that what's happening right now in China is maybe the best case scenario for containment, at least their response now, not, not the, the initial response and the censorship of, of uh, the, the doctors there and, and some of the early officials. Um, but at least their response since is unprecedented and, and it's going to be impossible to replicate in the West in particular and the non-authoritarian regimes. Um, what tends to happen in situations like that where federal or authoritarian governments get more power is they generally don't cede it after it's been granted Correct. post-crisis. So you can see even in the, the democracies, look at the Patriot the, Act. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And, and, and I think it's, it's why it's, it's healthy to compare, you know, you, uh, we call them the forever wars. You talk about the, the, we talked about KYC AML pre and post Patriot Act. Um, I think many people, I certainly feel this way are, are worried about what happens in the aftermath of something like the coronavirus, mm-hmm. if it truly does become um, a major worldwide pandemic with relatively high mortality rates and, and puts the type of stress that it, you know, we think it could put on the healthcare system. Um, what, what are your, what are your hopes for, right. uh, if, if the worst case plays out, which, you know, we don't really have control over, so it's not like we're rooting for it or against it. Obviously we're rooting against it, but, um, if you're just looking at the numbers and, and, mm-hmm. and you're fearing for the worst, what comes next, right? And, and what is yeah. the role of HRF and, and folks within crypto sure. and, and like-minded individuals to fight the fight against the permanent extension of, of you know, the surveillance state and more authoritarian? Yeah, so there was a great study put out recently by The Economist uh, that looked at data over the last, um, I think, uh, several decades, going back to the mid-century, uh, the 20th century. And um, it was the cor- looking at the correlation between um, epidemics uh, and democracies and dictatorships. And the correlation is very, very clear that you have a, a, a worse spread of disease uh, in closed societies. And this is something that you could maybe call the Chernobyl effect, which is basically the uh, trade-off that people make inside dictatorships or authoritarian regimes to support a narrative that's, that, that is you know, in favor of the ruling party as opposed to public health. And while this is not entirely missing in democracies, it's way, way smaller um, because, you know, obviously power is divided in democracies and people have shorter terms and there's term limits and there's a free press and there's all these other things. So in the same way that Amartya Sen once observed that there's never been a famine in a democracy ever, this is incredible piece of information. Um, uh, all of the famines in the world have either been caused by colonialism, occupation, uh, dictatorship, etc. All, all the top 10 famines of the last hundred years, all man-made by dictatorships, whether it was um, in the Soviet Union or in uh, British occupied Southeast Asia or India or uh, whether it was in North Korea or Ethiopia, et cetera. You can do all the digging into this. It's fascinating. But on the same level, with regard to public health, um, yeah, you have this effect where like, <laughs> let's just put it this way. Had the coronavirus like out, you know, started in Atlanta, Georgia, um, 
the U S government would not have been like hunting down doctors and like putting them in black bags and sending them away. And, you know, that has a direct impact on how the virus spreads, obviously, uh, with, with regard to uh, a, how the public perceives it and B how we can spread information most effectively about how to contain it and how to address it. Uh, this is being seen even more ridiculously in Iran right now. So China is, obviously we've seen what's happened in China and how the communist party mishandled it. And it could very well be the, the another crack in the wall for them towards their eventual demise. Now we've seen, we've seen only what we've seen. We, I've seen a lot of reports leaking out from Chinese human rights activists that it is really bad in prisons in China uh, right now. And there's not a lot of information about that. You won't find that, but if you, you'll see little glimmers of it, but there are reports of entire prisons where everyone's infected. There are reports of um, some really gnarly stuff. And if you think about the conditions that people are in, for example, in prison camps in Xinjiang, I mean, these people are already in concentration camps. Can you imagine the ravaging of, of these camps where there's literally no medical staff? Um, you've also, I would also point your attention to North Korea. Obviously, there's an, an outbreak in South Korea. There's outbreak in China. What's, who's in the middle? So, you know, there was a report, I mean, who knows, um, you know, that the North Korean government was basically just rounding up people and shooting them and burying them. I mean, the thing is, that's not any different from what they do anyway. So in the North Korean government's perspective, you're, whether you're sick in the mind, being a dissident or sick in the, of the body, we're going to treat you all the same. Right. So there's a lot of like death and suffering that's not being talked about. And when it comes to the case of Iran, it was it was the, the Chernobyl effect was even greater because there were there are dissidents posting videos like on Twitter, like through their networks, like they do anyway, of doctors and like scenes from hospitals. And the government was covering the whole thing up, allowing citizens to leave, go on planes to Europe and Canada and stuff. And they just weren't telling anyone about it because they were hoping it would blow over. So it wouldn't damage their already their reputation that's already in tatters. Um, so, I mean, hope to God it doesn't spread further, but you can imagine what this would do, what this disease would do in, in the prison camps in Xinjiang or in places like Syria or Yemen, et cetera. So um, it's sad, but uh, at the end of the day, authoritarianism is really bad for humans, especially with regard to public health. Go figure. Uh, well, you know, I, I think um, that paints a pretty bleak near and, and medium term picture for, for some of those other countries. But let's talk about the impact on democracies, right? Because yeah. um, yes, the initial uh, communications may have been botched by some of these authoritarian regimes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, China is one extreme example. Singapore is often referred to as the friendliest authoritarian state in the world, right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's, it is. It's, 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 as long it's, as they say it like that, that's accurate, actually. Right. And, and, but they, yeah. but my point is they have done what appears to be a phenomenal job yes. in containing the outbreak of the virus. Right. So um, you can look at the situation in China and Iran, you can look mm -hmm. at the situation in Singapore. And if you are looking to uh, grab more control and centralize more control, you will obviously point out and, and communicate the Singaporean example versus the Chinese or the Iranian. Yes. Example. Um, the question then becomes, how do you ever reclaim that after a period of crisis? Um, and I don't know that there's a, a there's certainly no easy answer, but I'm curious how you've thought about communicating this and mm -hmm. um, and, and being a, a vocal proponent of this. 
even amidst the crisis as, as a bit of forewarning and then, you know, in particular, what efforts would need to be made afterwards mm-hmm. um, so that we don't get into a situation like we did with the Patriot Act and, and the national well, surveillance. I think that what may end up happening, I mean, you're already seeing a little bit of this with like in China, like they're, they're confiscating cash under the pretext that it's uh, it's, it could spread the disease, which, which actually makes sense. I, I do think that, that in 20 years, 30 years, people will look back and kind of laugh at the idea of paper money at just how, how many germs it has on it, et cetera. Um, but that's one of the reasons I'm very into financial freedom and privacy and, and working with Bitcoin, because I think we need to have a replacement that protects our, our privacy and, and, and our sovereignty um, in a world without cash. Uh, but I also would say that like in democracies, the thing that we have as a, as a benefit that those other societies don't have is the free flow of information. So I, I do feel like um, if, if we harness that correctly, it will be uh, much better for us. And, you know, a lot of that's actually being borne out. You're seeing like very high number of uh, cases reported in South Korea, right? Um, but you know what? They're not trying to hide anything. So it's unclear, uh, you know, you know, what proportion like, obviously, I'm sure you and I both don't believe the 2,500 death toll in China number. Um, not when, like, entire families are dying. Not when there are entire prisons being infected and we don't know about them. But in South Korea, like, those numbers are are, are, are kind of like the numbers, right? And and um, I think that democracies will give us a little bit more of a, a picture of reality when it comes to how societies are dealing with pandemics. I think Taiwan is being quite quoted as basically being the paradigm for how you would handle this properly. I mean, they are doing an outrageously good job in, in almost every possible case. And I would seek people to point out, point out people out to look at what Taiwanese government's been doing. And they are relying on their openness to, to fight this thing. Um, Singapore, of course, relies on its uh, police state uh, capabilities to fight it. But you got to remember, Singapore is a huge exception in the world of dictatorships, a, a huge exception. Um, it is very, very rare city state, uh, unique case. Uh, most dictatorships are much closer to China or Iran in the way that they would, they would handle a a crisis like this. Um, so take a look at Taiwan, um, sympathize with the South Koreans. I mean, I know that moon is getting raked over the coals for his response to this thing. Um, but at least they're not fabricating data. Um, there's some crazy stuff going on in South Korea, man. There's, there's cults and protest movements that are ignoring the warnings and they're going out in the streets. And there's this thing I saw last night that was so crazy. Uh, there's a cult in, in South Korea that, um, I think it was, uh, uh, they had tested 1800 of these cult members and 82% of them have tested positive for the disease. And there's a, there's, there's like a hundred thousand of these people out there. And it's like, we don't, you know, and they're all gathering in a way that's unsafe because these people are anti-science. Like it's wild. So it's, it was the same in Iran, right? They were like, go to Friday prayer last week, go to Friday prayer. And you know, you've got cities like calm where God, there's just like entire death wards and hospitals. So again, like dictatorships and censorship don't mix well with public health. So this is an unfortunate lesson for the world, but um, hopefully, you know, the more work we can do with journalism and free expression and civil liberties, privacy, the, the, the better this sort of thing could, could become. One other thing I'll mention that's a really interesting uh, uh, side effect of this potentially long-term is I do think that face masks become more of a, like a normal thing to, to, to mm-hmm. use, uh, you know, and especially as they get more effective as people work on them more. 
and that is interesting because it really frustrates facial recognition. I know it's not going to be a cure-all because they're working on gait analysis as well and other things, um, but I'll take that as a win, you know? Any, any incremental uh, win that, uh, that, that fights mm-hmm. back against the Leviathan. Um, Alex, uh, how, how do you hope to engage with the broader crypto community in, in 2020 beyond, you know, we talked about some of the, the education research and other initiatives that you have underway. Um, where can people get involved? Uh, how, mm-hmm. how, how do you envision uh, further integrating yeah. with the crypto community beyond uh, just informing people and, and your network about the, the power of encryption and, and encrypted money? Uh-huh. Yeah. So I'm a, uh looking, uh, focusing very closely on uh, regulation and privacy uh, right now, because there's going to, there, there's going to be some big battles ahead. Um, obviously these are raging all the time, but um, I always point people to look at 2017 with Bitcoin as a example of how like, you know, these Chinese miners and corporates tried to try to take over Bitcoin and it didn't work. And we're going to get more of those attacks as we move forward. And in Bitcoin, I think we're going to get those attacks uh, against privacy and also in favor of inflation. Um, and I think these are really important things for people to be able to fight back. And unfortunately, I think the coalitions that are going to build that are going to be against adding privacy tech to, the, to Bitcoin Core and who are also going to be like pushing this narrative that we should add a little bit of inflation are both going to be really powerful. So I think those are going to happen in the next five to 10 years and it's going to be tough. Um, and if people are interested in a money project that's sovereign and is not controlled by corporations or governments, you know, there's only one side to be on in those, in those, in those fights. So that's something I'm, I'm really looking at is, is like, you know, what, what are possible measures to take if privacy is like regulated out of existence, meaning like what happens if uh, in Coinbase, your ability to withdraw to a private wallet just disappears one day. Like if, you know, what would happen? Um, that's a worry for me, right? Um, I would imagine that would be a worry for anybody in that, regardless of which cryptocurrency you're working on. Um, and it's a possibility. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's an immediate possibility. I think fine folks at like Coin Center and other places are doing good work to educate lawmakers about First and Fourth Amendment and how these things work. Um, but I, I, this is an area that I'm, I'm trying to dive really deep into and uh, see what, what can be done. Um, I do think that... Um, you will see like a Supreme court case uh, in the next couple of years about privacy. And, and I think specifically with regard to Bitcoin and, and this practice of coin joining, I think that um, that will probably go to, uh, if not the Supreme court, at least a, it'll be a big federal court case. And it'll basically be like, do, do businesses have to do business with people who coin join or not? Like, is that, is that, is it, is it legal for them to discriminate against people who want to protect their privacy? I think that would be a really interesting thing to think about. Again, as long as you're working in a currency uh, a community that uses UTXOs, right, which is which is most. So, um, so that's going to be big. Um, as far as what's going on at HRF, um, yeah, I want to do more workshops. I want to bring more human rights activists into uh, to be able to talk to uh, people who can help them about talk to them about financial freedom and privacy, and. Um, I think uh, doing more research would be really interesting. So partnering with organizations to, to get some research to learn about what's going on in, in some of these communities around the world where 
uh, we're not, they're not going to face the same issues as we do in the United States. Like we're going to have this big battle over KYC AML. Meanwhile, in Nigeria, like all the stuff's traded on WhatsApp and there's just no, you know what I mean? There's, wow, it's just going to be a very different paradigm, right? Mm-hmm. In China, I don't know if you've seen these apps that people use to, to buy Bitcoin, but there are these very popular apps. I'm not going to name them, but you, you can go find them. But, uh, they do billions of dollars a day. And like, you don't need to create, you don't need to KYC to start to create an account or to even do some volume. You need to start doing more KYC to do larger volumes. But it's like the Chinese government is, uh, does not have a problem with this right now. I mean, obviously they have bigger fish to fry at the moment, but like they're not cracking down on this, which to me is so bizarre and so strange. And I always see people like, you know, everybody's always like worried about how much of the Bitcoin infrastructure is in China. Right. Um, and I think it's interesting to use, to look at China as a canary in the coal mine. Like what, well, when will they crack down on this? Like right now, Chinese retail citizens are just buying billions of dollars of Bitcoin, you know, in a week, every week with very little KYC. Uh, a lot of it's OTC. Uh, when will that come to an end? You know? Um, but if and, it doesn't, and, and, it and says, can like, it, right? it, it, it can it, right? Like, yeah, can they enforce like, it? Do, do, well, um, not only can they enforce it, but does, is there some tipping point where, especially given they have bigger fish to fry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is there some tipping point where it would create such enormous amounts of unrest to essentially steal from or, or, or ultimately hurt financially many of the people uh, in your population that are, that are already frustrated uh, with the government and, and have started to demonstrate uh, a little bit of fight and, and some pushback on some of the top-down you know, strictures that have, have been put in place more recently with, with the coronavirus, but, right. but in general. Um, does this become something where uh, it's tough to shut down, just practically speaking, lest you have a rebellion on your hands? Um, I think, yeah. I don't know that we're there yet, uh, I think it's way still you know, way too small, but you could make the case that if Bitcoin gets to a trillion dollars in market cap, which is mm-hmm. you know, it's far, it's still far away, but it's not that far. You know, seventy five thousand right. dollars um, per Bitcoin, and, and yep. there, that might be the that might be the tipping point where where to shut it down would be to destroy too much personal wealth that's in too many hands. Um, but uh, certainly something that, that we'll keep track of. And we're definitely going to have to do another one of these conversations soon, mm-hmm. uh, especially given some of the work that you have coming out, which we were going to talk about, but I appreciate that we got to wait a little we'll bit. We'll do more, man. And, I really appreciate all, you having all, me on. All will be revealed. Yeah, um, yeah. There's, there's certainly plenty that the, uh, the HRF has done. It's at HRF and uh, Alex, where can people find you? Uh, at Gladstein, G-L-A-D-S-T-E-A-N. Um, again, grateful for your time. Had fun talking. Hope people can dive into these topics and, Feel free to reach out to me if you want to talk more. Of course. Well, thank you. Hope everyone in our audience enjoyed this episode with Alex Gladstein. And we will be back in just a couple of days with another episode of Unqualified Opinions. Until then, thanks for tuning in. Peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot. If you want to continue the conversation or troll me, otherwise, I'll see you next week.